This is Lewis Lapham for Lapham's Quarterly, and this is The World in Time. Lead support for this podcast has been provided by Elizabeth Lizette Prince. Additional support was provided by James J. Jimmy Coleman, Jr. Speaking today with the journalist and critic Elizabeth Winkler about her new and marvelous book, Shakespeare Was a Woman and Other Heresies, How Doubting the Bard Became the Biggest Taboo in Literature. Your book, Elizabeth, unveils the mystery of what these days goes by the name of the authorship question, and I expect its readers to be as grateful as myself for its clarity and insight. Perhaps you can begin by telling us why, where, and what is the mystery, and how it came to pass that you found yourself involved in it. Thank you, Lewis. The authorship question is the theory that William Shakespeare might not have written the works published under his name. And it's a horribly contentious, vexed, in some ways almost forbidden subject insofar as uh, English literature professors, Shakespeare professors, that is, do not want to even entertain this idea. But over the years, an incredible number of writers and thinkers have suspected that the name was indeed a pseudonym for a concealed writer. So I, I had studied English literature and Shakespeare as a, as a student. I'd heard there was this question, but I didn't pay much attention to it back then. Um, I, I studied the plays, as you do. But years later, I wondered, you know, I, I came across, I think it was Henry James's quote. He said, I am sort of haunted by the conviction that the divine William was the biggest and most successful fraud ever practiced on a patient world. Remarkable coming from Henry James. And then, you know, Walt Whitman also suspected there was another mind behind the plays. Mark Twain, Nabokov uh, said, you, you know, the author had concealed his monstrous genius beneath a mask. So I wanted to understand what was going on here. Why, why did these, all these writers suspect that there was another writer? And why is it so hard to talk about? <laughs> okay. And so how did you begin? We begin by reading other authors or asking the question, if not the Shakespeare from Stratford-on-Avon, the one whose bust is still to be seen in Stratford, who are some of the other possible authors? Well, I really began first by reading about what we do know about Shakespeare, because you don't really, as a student of the plays, you don't really spend time on the biography. That's not usually taught in schools. And I was sort of flabbergasted by all the gaps and the problems in the traditional story. You know, scholars effectively have no idea how this man wrote the plays, and they acknowledge that it's a mystery. There was a, a conference a few years ago at the Folger Shakespeare Library in Washington, D.C., called Shakespeare and the Problem of Biography, and all these scholars were sort of wringing their hands over how difficult it is to construct Shakespeare's biography. And one of the opening, in the opening remarks, one scholar said, the biggest lacuna of all is the mystery of how he ever became a writer in the first place. What is that mystery? I mean, what what are some of the gaps and problems? I mean, how little do we know of the life of the man from Stratford-on-Avon? What's remarkable is that there are actually a mass of records about his life, 
but they don't support a literary life. They show that he was a businessman, a property investor, a theater company, an actor. They, you know, you can find records about his uh, lawsuits, legal dealings, his will. So you have all of this information about his life, but nothing that really points to a life dedicated to writing. And that's odd because for other writers of the period, they left a sort of paper trail, if you will, um, where you can find letters in which they refer to their writing or payment records paying them for writing or at their death. Notice that, you know, our poet Edmund Spencer died last Saturday and was buried at Westminster. That kind of thing is missing for Shakespeare. That's one kind of problem. What's fascinating is actually just how many problems there are. He didn't leave those kinds of letters. There was no notice at his death, which is very odd. You know, seven weeks before Shakespeare died, another playwright named Francis Beaumont died, and he was recognized and buried at Westminster. When Ben Jonson, another famous playwright of the era, died, he had a grand funeral at which, you know, anyone who was anyone in London, everyone who was anyone in London was, was present. One document where you would sort of expect to find something, Shakespeare's will, is it's a very mysterious document because he meticulously bequeaths his assets um, to various people, you know, the second best bed, famously, and a, a bull and a sword and all these things. You know, he was quite a wealthy man when he died, but he makes absolutely no mention of any plays, poems, or manuscripts of any kind. Only half of the plays have been published. You know, did he not have, did he have no concern for their preservation? 154 highly personal sonnets, his two, you know, two of his major narrative poems, no mention at all. So reading the will, you would have no idea that this was a person whose life was supposedly spent writing. I mean, another kind of problem scholars struggle with is the sheer knowledge contained in the plays. You know, they're incredibly erudite with um, some, someone who is clearly deeply read in classics and philosophy, theology, Italian, French, knows European geography, court politics, uh, Greek. He had at most a grammar school education. We don't even know if he had that because the records don't survive. But scholars, they need to assume he had that. You know, they desperately need to assume he had it. But the grammar schools, you know, they, these were provincial one-room schoolhouses that taught Latin grammar and arithmetic. So the, they have no idea how he acquired all the other knowledge in the plays. Um, and they kind of, in order to write these biographies, they have to essentially make things up. So when you read them, you'll see they're full of, he could have, must have, probably, maybe, surely, you know, it's, it's speculation. It's what one scholar has called biographical fiction. Uh, famous, famously, uh, the, the Shakespeare scholar Samuel Schoenbaum resolved the conundrum by saying Shakespeare was superhuman, which is... <laughs> hilarious as an explanation because it's really not an explanation it's saying you know magic basically and that's what they have to fall back on magic and what about the, there were no books in his library in stratford no mention of really intellectual interests of any kind other intellectuals of the period left books uh bequeathed books to family members books were valuable or they left musical instruments you know the author of the shakespeare plays loves music clearly maps are also sometimes bequeathed in wills but not in his yeah, no mention of books. It's a weird thing. You know, and scholars try to explain these things away by saying, oh, well, you know, maybe there was an inventory in which he listed everything and the inventory has disappeared. So they, they come up with these kind of, kinds of sort of wishful solutions. Well, what's just striking about it is they're, they have to twist themselves into all sorts of contortions, essentially, to defend and maintain their belief in, in this author. 
And I, I found that just so remarkable um, among scholars in a modern university system who are supposed to teach critical thinking. You know, skepticism is usually a virtue in the scholarly world, but when it comes to this very specific area of study, Shakespeare, skepticism is a kind of sin. You know, you're, you cannot be skeptical, skeptical about Shakespeare. It's, it's treated as heresy. Right, and it, it's treated as religion, right? Exactly. There is a deeply, deeply religious element to the whole Shakespeare mythology, and that's what I really wanted to dig into in this book. Fundamentally, this book is about belief and how a belief uh, like this has been sustained sort of long past, I think, its sell-by date. It should have, the belief should have, uh, I mean, kind of crumbled, I think, quite a while ago, but it hasn't, and that's, that's an, a remarkable phenomenon. The Shakespeare scholar J. Dover Wilson wrote that to believe that um, a boy with nothing more than a, a grammar school education wrote a play like Love's Labor's Lost, he said it requires you to believe in miracles or to disbelieve in the man from Stratford. And that was a Shakespeare scholar. But they have, they have managed to maintain the belief in miracles into the 21st century. And it's, it's really an incredible phenomenon. And you've confronted it in person. In other words, you've talked to some of these scholars and accuse you of, of, of heresy, right? I mean, they, they refuse to entertain the possibility of an alternate author. They are not happy with me. <laughs> um, right. Well, I thought a lot about how to approach this subject because it's a tricky thing as a journalist. There's sort of a sense, well, if you're not a Shakespeare scholar, you have, you know, what authority do you have to speak or to write about this subject? But I, I looked to other journalists who have written about scholarly controversies. And one of my favorites is Janet Malcolm, who just passed away a couple years ago. But she wrote, she wrote, for instance, about a controversy around Sylvia Plath in her book, The Silent Woman, and another controversy among Freud scholars in her book, In the Freud Archives. And she approached it by taking her questions to the scholars. And I thought, well, that's brilliant. That's what needs to be done here. Because a lot of people have written books on this subject, usually very academic books, in which they sort of argue that this person was Shakespeare, or this person was really Shakespeare. They make the case for their candidate. But I wanted to understand how this belief had been sustained in the first place, you know, and I wanted to really question the scholars because they're not often made to answer for some of their claims on this subject. And, you know, I also wanted to bring it to light because it is a kind of detective story. It's a wonderful mystery. And there's so many fabulous characters in this controversy, the scholars on the one hand and the heretics on the other. And they make it this kind of eccentric underworld, you know, of, of the Shakespeare authorship question. Talk about some of the, some of those characters. I mean, Stanley Wells is is one of the uh, arch conservatives, right? And, and you, you had a conversation with him, and you also had a conversation with one of the radicals, the Alexander Waugh, the grandson of Evelyn Waugh. Talk about those two two characters and your your engagement with them. Sir Stanley Wells is one of uh, Britain's leading Shakespeare authorities, a knighted Shakespeare scholar. He has um, written, you know, countless books on Shakespeare, biographies of Shakespeare. He's provided presided over the Shakespeare Birthplace Trust in Stratford-upon-Avon, which is the little tourist industry there, for many years. Um, and in 2011, he declared it is immoral to question 
history and to take credit away from William Shakespeare of Stratford-upon-Avon. I found that a very remarkable statement, you know, a moral consequence of history when, when inquiry is the very basis of the historical discipline. So, but that statement sort of um, tells you everything, that this is actually a, a moral subject in many ways for people. And so I went to Stratford. He had agreed to speak with me. I wasn't quite sure if he knew who I was or not. You know, I, I didn't know if he'd Googled me, but he said, yes, let's talk. And then the night before our interview, he tried to bail on me, tried to cancel because he said, you know, I have just discovered you're an anti-Shakespearean. I should prefer not to meet with you. I'm sort of expecting that might happen. But in the end, I persuaded him to talk. And it was this sort of tense exchange, which is unfortunate. I don't think these you know, why do these conversations about the authorship of 400-year-old plays have to be so antagonistic? I, I wanted it just to be an interesting conversation. But we spoke for about two hours, and I wanted to ask him about various pieces of evidence, you know, that are debated around the authorship. One of them, for example, is Ben Jonson's opening tribute to Shakespeare in the first folio. Uh, this is The first folio is the collection of Shakespeare's plays, the, the, the full edition, which came out in 1623, 400 years ago. And it's prefaced with various tributes to the author. So scholars often point to this to say, look here, it's evidence that he, they're praising this man Shakespeare, it's evidence that he wrote the plays. It's sort of their, their most important document in the authorship debate. However, in the opening lines of the tribute, Ben Jonson begins by warning about praise of Shakespeare's name. And he's sort of, he's really worried. He says, those of filiest ignorance, blind affection, and crafty malice might misconstrue praise of this author's name. Now, skeptics say, look, he's, he's kind of hinting here that this is not the person's name, you know, because after 16 lines of this preamble, then he goes on the 17th line, my Shakespeare rise, now I will begin. So I said to Professor Wells, I said, you know, what is going on with these 16 lines here warning about praise of the author's name? What do you think that's all about? You know, and he said, I don't have any theory about that. I don't know. This was remarkable to me. This is one of the most important texts uh, in the whole discussion. And Sir Stanley Wells, you know, Britain's knighted Shakespeare authority, who has been engaged in this Shakespeare study, you know, his entire career had no theory, didn't have anything to say about that. And it went like this on and on through a number of a number of pieces of evidence I brought to him. You know, there was another another text, which is the first time any writer of the period referred to this person, Shakespeare, in 1594. It's the first reference. And Stanley Wells has called it cryptic. It's sort of, it's a very cryptic text. It's hard to understand what, what is being said here about this person, Shakespeare. So I asked him about it and he said, well, I've never really bothered to look at it, to be honest. I don't know. I haven't really bothered. And these were just you know, astonishing statements. I had expected to hear all sorts of different kinds of interpretations about because, of course, it can be different ways. But for a Shakespeare scholar to just say, I haven't bothered, I don't have any theory about that, you know, it, it was a kind of abdication of his authority as a scholar uh, and really, you know, really revealing in a lot of ways. There were other points in our conversation where he kind of, I don't know if you want to call them Freudian slips, but he said he said things that made it sound like he was almost agreeing with the heretics. For instance, when I asked him about one of the sonnets where the poet says, let me pass untold, 
you know, this is a recurring theme in the sonnets. My name be buried where my body is. I once gone to all the world must die. Let me pass untold. The sense that the poet is saying that his identity is in some way going to disappear after his death. So I said, you know, Professor Wells, what's going on here? Let me pass untold. What do you think he means? And he said, he said, well, it sounds like he's saying he wants to remain anonymous. And I thought, well, yes, (laughs) it does sound like that. You know, so it was, I hope readers, you know, find the discussion interesting. I tried in the end, you know, I've been criticized a bit for, Stanley Wells is old now, he's in his 90s, you know, and he is an elderly scholar, but he's still active. He's now writing a book called What Shakespeare Was Really Like, you know, and he's been very engaged in the authorship discussion. He wrote, he edited a book called Shakespeare Beyond Doubt, you know, trying to defend his position. Um, I, so I've been quest, I've been criticized a bit for, you know, questioning a scholar who's, I guess, in his later years, but I, I didn't, I thought I, I had to talk to him. You know, he's, he's been one of the central figures in this, in this discussion and he's, he's written about it. And in the end, I, I tried to grant him a huge amount of sympathy and understanding because he's given his whole life over to Shakespeare. He's devoted years of research and, you know, work to this author um, who he believes in and who he adores. He has become, you know, a knight of the British Empire through Shakespeare, raised himself up through Shakespeare. So, of course, you know, he's not going to give up that belief. It's too hard to do psychologically. So much of this subject, I realized, has to do with the psychology of belief and how difficult it is for people to change their beliefs. You know, you, you just can't do it when you've staked your reputation and your published works as he has on a subject like this. You know, he, he has, he's a knight who has fought for the faith, if you will. And even though he kept saying in our, in our interview, you know, oh, I, don't, I don't know about that piece of evidence. I haven't looked into that. I'm not sure what that means. Um, he's still going to sort of die fighting for the faith, if you will, clinging to the faith. It, one of our last exchanges, I, I said to him, you know, look, if there's so many things that you're not sure about, that you don't know, why not admit, you know, why cling to certainty on this subject? Why not admit, you know, maybe we're not sure about the author. And he said, you know, I think there's, despite all the gaps, he said, I think there's enough of a structure to sustain the meaning, to sustain the meaning we provide for it, he said. And that, I thought that was a, a remarkable phrase, the meaning we provide for it. This sort of sense that the Shakespeare scholars are the priestly interpreters of the, of the evidence, and they are going to provide the meaning for us, um, so I left, I left Stratford sort of thinking about that phrase, the meaning we provide for it in this painting he had in his home of himself wearing his knighthood medal. Some, some people think Shakespeare scholars know that it's not, that he wasn't really the author. You know, they have this cynical idea that, they're, that the tradition is being maintained dishonestly. But I think with a lot of scholars, they really do believe in it and they're, and they're clinging to that belief because it's so important to them. The religion of, of Shakespeare... Uh, appears in the 19th century, and and you suggest that it's the failure of organized other religion. I mean, of the Protestant religion and so on, under yeah. under siege by Darwin and others, that the British come to substitute the glory of Shakespeare as as the glory of England, and it becomes a it becomes a religious belief in the 19th century. Is that right? It really does. I mean, it actually begins in the 18th century. Pilgrims start flocking to Stratford-upon-Avon to pay homage to the poet. They throw themselves down at the birthplace, which is the purported site of his nativity. 
Um, they sing odes to Shakespeare. They cut pieces of the local mulberry tree, like relics of the true cross. You know, there's this deep um, veneration that happens. And Stratford-upon-Avon becomes a kind of English Bethlehem. And you can ask why that happened. I think it has to do with the tremendous religious turmoil in Britain um, between Catholics and Protestants and the, sort of the back and forth there during the Reformation and then, you know, civil war in England. So you get to the 18th century and Shakespeare starts to become this kind of unifying God figure, Christ figure that the whole nation can get behind. There's even a painting made in the late 18th century. It now hangs here in the Folger Shakespeare Library in D.C. of Shakespeare, baby Shakespeare, in a kind of nativity scene. It's an amazing painting. It's called The Infant Shakespeare. And you, it sort of it really sums up the whole thing. He becomes a Christ figure. In the 19th century, this accelerates into what the playwright George Bernard Shaw, Bernard Shaw called bardolatry, this deep, deep idolatry around Shakespeare. And this is also the era of expansive imperialism. And Shakespeare is held up as proof of Britain's cultural superiority, of its right to rule. You know, we have the greatest poet the world has ever seen. You should be sort of so lucky to be governed by us. So the mythologies of the nation and its poet, the empire and its hero god really become intertwined over the course of the 19th into the 20th century. There's a wonderful speech by Thomas Carlyle in the 1840s, the critic Thomas Carlyle. He says, you know, what is going to unite all of the English speaking peoples of the world? What's going to unite the British empire? And he says, it's going to be the universal church of Shakespeare, of the future and all times. And he says, you know, Shakespeare is most significant as a rallying sign, indestructible, and that that is his, his most important function as a rallying sign for all the English-speaking peoples of the world. It, it's an incredible, incredible speech, and it really encapsulates the whole phenomenon um, of what happened there. And, you know, this is the period in which English departments began to develop. There were no English departments until about the mid to late 19th century. Um, and they, they're founded on and formed around Shakespeare. And they're sort of like these little churches of Shakespeare that begin to develop within the university systems. And those beliefs about Shakespeare that were enshrined during this period of extreme veneration have been passed down from one generation of scholars to the next. Yeah, it, it, but at the same time, it's true that... Shakespeare's thought and praising is embedded in in our language. I mean, a number of phrases of Shakespeare that appear, you know, throughout uh, American letters is extraordinary. Oh, absolutely. I don't mean in any way to denigrate the works. No, no. Sometimes people think that uh, they call those, they call skeptics, anti-Shakespearean, which is a clever, it's a clever rhetorical device because it makes anyone who questions the authorship somehow against Shakespeare. But actually most people, most skeptics I've encountered, they love Shakespeare. They love him so much they want to know who the person was behind these plays. They want to sort of touch the face of God, if you will. And they're not satisfied um, with simply saying, oh, it was a miracle. They really want to know the author. Who were some of the other candidates? Francis Bacon was first proposed in the 19th century. And the, the interest in him was because he sort of fit the profile of what people thought the author of the plays must have been like, highly educated, 
highly traveled, connected to Elizabethan court politics, to um, to European politics on the continent, a philosopher, a brilliant mind, and also a statesman, a lawyer. And in the 19th century, there was a huge amount of research coming out on the legal knowledge in Shakespeare's plays. Judges and lawyers who have read them, they say, look, this author almost speaks in legal phrases. He turns to the, to the, to the law to construct metaphor and figurative language, you know, but Shakespeare of Stratford had no legal training. So Bacon seemed to sort of fit the profile for a while, but his works are are, are very different stylistically. His philosophical works are so different stylistically from Shakespeare's that that didn't really solve the issue for many people. And other candidates continued to be put forward. One of them was the Earl of Derby, uh, Earl of Derby, I should say, who was, there's a, there was a, a record made saying that the Earl of Derby was penning comedies for the common players, but no record of his plays have ever been found, has, has ever been found. So was he writing them under a pseudonym, under another name? Darby is very popular among some French scholars. Abel Lefranc, a great French scholar, thought Darby wrote the plays because he had traveled in France and in, in some of the plays like Love's Labor's Lost, the author is clearly deeply knowledgeable about French politics, French culture, um, and what was happening on the continent in sort of the 1580s when Shakespeare of Stratford was, you know, a teenager in, in Stratford-upon-Avon. The most popular candidate today is Edward de Vere, the Earl of Oxford, who was proposed in 1920. And the case for him is sort of massive. There are all sorts of books written about it. I tried to give it, you know, in, in, in sort of a condensed form to readers. I've reported on all, on all these theories without kind of siding with any particular candidate because I wanted readers to grapple themselves with the problems and the gaps and the inconsistencies without being told what to think and let them sort of sort through the different theories and see what conclusions they come to. But Oxford traveled in Italy and Italy is a huge, a huge influence in the plays. You know, Italian scholars have said the, the author's knowledge of Italian geography, Italian language, colloquial language, Italian customs is just extraordinary. And this, this author must have traveled for some period in Italy. So Oxford aligns very nicely with that. There are other things in the play sort of biographical parallels that Oxfordians point to. Well, tell, tell, tell me some of those. I mean, in my own reading, to me, the Oxford is the, the Earl of Oxford, 17th Earl, uh, otherwise known as Edward de Vere, to me, is the most plausible of, of the alternatives. Talk about some of the parallels between the life of the Earl of Oxford and, and the Shakespearean plays. Sure. I mean, for example, in the play All's Well That Ends Well, it's about a young nobleman whose father dies and he goes to court after his father's death. He's sort of a ward of the court. And then he, he eventually absconds to Italy and he marries a young woman who's sort of a commoner much beneath him. One of the first people to propose <laughs> Oxford said, look, this is exactly Oxford's life. Oxford's father died when he was young. He was sent to court. He ended up marrying his a younger a woman who was uh, been sort of beneath him in class, commoner, and, and then he absconded to Italy because he didn't much like the marriage. It's it's the same sort of it's remarkably similar plot line, and so people have said, look, either Oxford wrote this play or or the author knew Oxford very well because it seems to be about him. Another instance is the character of Polonius in Hamlet. 
scholars long before Oxford was proposed as a candidate, scholars have pointed out that Polonius, who is the king's chief advisor in Hamlet, seems to be a parody of Lord Burley, who was Queen Elizabeth's chief advisor. There are all sorts of details in the plays that identify Polonius as Burley. Now, Polonius was also um, also Oxford's sort of, well, it was his father-in-law, but also the man who raised him, because when Oxford's father died, he was sent to live with Burley, and he grew up in his household, and so knew him very intimately his whole life, ended up marrying his daughter. So, you know, these are the kinds of little details that people point to, and, and you know, the other thing, of course, is that Hamlet is, you know, about court politics, that court told from the perspective of a nobleman, and and Oxford sort of fits the aristocratic profile that people point to in these plays. The scholar Northup, Northup Fry said, you know, Shakespeare seems to have had the born instincts of a courtier because he's interested in the workings of the upper classes and sort of, you know, the, the politics at court. So that's why aristocrats like Oxford have, have become popular. At least 20 of the plays take place at court. That's right. Yeah, that's right. And we have no reason to believe that the man from Stratford ever was within the precincts of a court in England or anywhere else. This was uh, Oxford's habitat and domain. Exactly. He would have known that world very intimately. I mean, the plays were performed at court. So actors in that in that sense they were present at court, but you know they're they're hired performers. They come in to do a performance. It doesn't mean they have intimate knowledge of sort of you know the people and the politics and the behind the scenes kind of machinations of the court. So Shakespeare scholars they they try to kind of exaggerate you know and imagine Shakespeare being intimate with courtiers, and there's just there's really nothing to substantiate that. It's it's another instance of them trying to kind of stretch things to fit, you know, to defend their belief. Uh, another thing is that in the sonnets, you know, the sonnets are very interesting. They're so opaque. Scholars have said, you know, they're an island of icebergs surrounded by fog, you know, and then they just can't figure them out. But in the sonnets, the poet repeatedly says that he has been sort of branded by scandal. There's been a vulgar scandal sort of stamped upon my brow. And he has this great sense of shame that he repeatedly refers to. And Oxford was sort of a scandalous figure at court. He got caught up in all sorts of, you know, scandalous episodes. And so that that is another instance in which there's no explanation for why any scandal around Shakespeare of Stratford, but Oxford seems to sort of fit the poet of the sonnets, you know, more closely, according to Oxfordians, at least. What is the difference in ages between... When is the man from Stratford born and when is Oxford born? Oxford, Oxford was born in 1550. Shakespeare of Stratford was born in 1564. So a 14-year difference. I mean, that's another thing, of course. The sonnets refer to a man who, uh, or a poet who seems elderly. You know, he's at the end of his life. He refers to, you know, few sort of few leaves now hang on my branches. I, you know, someone who's nearing death. But Shakespeare of Stratford would have only been, you know, maybe in his 30s at the time the sonnets were composed. So that also doesn't make sense. But, you know, Oxford was older and fit, better fits the profile of a, a sort of a more senior, a senior poet that that seems to be present in those poems. Yes. I mean, if you believe the 
if it's the man from Stratford, that means you have a very young man in his 20s who has no experience of the world and is writing Othello, Macbeth, and Hamlet. Yeah. <laughs> with, with nothing to go on. Exactly. I mean, that's another thing people have pointed out that there's there's sort of there's no juvenilia, no sign of any sort of early poetic attempts, endeavors, these masterpieces, you have to believe, just sort of poured out of him in the 1590s without without any precedent, any, you know, any sign of you know where they are coming from. Um, and they're so, I mean, they're so extraordinary. How, how does he have all this knowledge of Italy, having never traveled in Italy, knowledge of law, having never trained in law, uh, of, of French, etc. So Oxford's, Oxford does have some early poetry that exists. And the Oxfordian theory, at least, notes that his he seems to sort of stop writing his poetry when the author Shakespeare appears. And so they think he just sort of basically adopted this pseudonym to put out put out these later works. And and the Oxfordian theory suggests that actually a lot of these plays were probably possibly written earlier, you know, earlier works he had written for the court perhaps and then revised over the years, reworked and began. Why uh, let me ask you this question. Why would a nobleman in the fifteen eighties, fifteen nineties be obliged to take a pseudonym because playwriting was like writing pornography today, right? I mean, it was just not done by uh, the upper class. Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. This is something I asked Alexander Waugh, who's sort of Britain's leading Oxfordian today, when I went to speak with him, you know, why did Oxford have to use a pseudonym if this this is what people say happened? Um, And his response was, look, we can't know his psychology or, or his thinking exactly. Writers over the years have used pseudonyms for all kinds of reasons, you know, but it is true that in the Renaissance, playwriting was a kind of frivolous endeavor. The theater was a fairly disreputable place full of gambling and prostitution and, you know, kind of lewd figures, if you will. And noblemen were meant to be focused on sort of the defense of crown and country. It was okay for them to write poetry and plays maybe in their leisure time as kind of trifles, but to publish them, to to engage in sort of the commercial vulgarity of selling your work in the marketplace was considered far beneath their station. And there, you know, there are even references in the period one courtier writes, you know, it's fine for for a nobleman to write verses to please himself, but to make them public, to make them public is foolish. So there was a kind of stigma of, of print, which is to say of the published sort of text. And that is the, the general explanation put forward for why a nobleman would choose to use a pseudonym. I think with Oxford, other things also, you know, have been suggested, for instance, the, the scandal around him, um, the fact that the plays are so deeply tied into the court and sort of they're, they're commenting often on figures at court, you know, like Lord Burley, like the queen. And so, you know, if they were, if they were going out under the name of a courtier who, who knew this world well, then it becomes more obvious that they're kind of commenting on this world. And if you put them out under another name, then there's a kind of distance there. 
Right. I mean, it would be dangerous for a nobleman, given the laws of censorship in Elizabethan England, to start writing about court in a way that could be taken as political commentary. Right. That, I mean, these are the these are the explanations that I've heard, you know, and it's hard. Of course, it's hard to know exactly what was going on in the mind of an author who chose to adopt a pseudonym. Some people say that he was forced to adopt a pseudonym and that the poet of the sonnets is sort of bewailing the fact that his identity is going to be lost and he didn't do it willingly. You know, so there are different theories out there. I think the, the main the main thing I take away from it is, you know, just the fact that pseudonyms were common in the period. The Renaissance was a great age of assumed names. And another thing that was done was false attribution, attributing your work to another real person rather than making up a fake name. So the authorship question is sometimes dismissed as a kind of nonsense conspiracy theory. But when you look at the practices around pseudonyms, false attribution, which those those names are referred to as allonyms in the period, I don't think it's so ludicrous. All right. Uh, uh- Let's get around to the question of the title. Why, why uh, Shakespeare was a woman? <laughs> I mean, I mean, talk about the women in Shakespeare's plays. I mean, I've I've read myself a theory that the plays could have been written by Mary Herbert, the I guess Countess of Pembroke. But the uh, why, why woman and 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 what do we find in the feminine characters in the play. Yeah. I I first was prompted to look into this question because I was really interested in the feminism of the plays. The Cambridge scholar Juliet Dusenberry says, Shakespeare's drama deserves the name feminist, for in his plays the struggle is for women to be human in a world that declares them only female. So I had this question sort of, you know, how did Shakespeare come to write feminist drama? That's how remarkable. Uh, Another scholar, Anne Barton, says Shakespeare has an uncanny understanding of women that's missing in the work of his fellow playwrights. So where did this uncanny understanding come from? You you can't find any explanation for it in the Stratford Man's biography. And in fact, there's a huge discrepancy because the women of the plays are extraordinarily intelligent and witty. They write letters, they compose sonnets, they read Ovid, but... uh, the Stratford man's own daughters appear to have been functionally illiterate. You know, one signed her name with a mark, the other with a signature described as painfully formed and the most she was probably able to do with a pen. So there, it's another instance in which sort of the glass slipper doesn't fit, if you will, the, the works don't fit this man. But I was interested in the women who have been proposed as possible authors or co-authors over the years, because there is this recurring feeling of something weirdly female or feminist about the author. Orson Welles said Shakespeare was clearly tremendously feminine. So what is going on there? In 1931, Gilbert Slater, uh, an Englishman, proposed Mary Sidney Herbert, the Countess of Pembroke, who you just mentioned, as a kind of co-author of the plays in effectively a group theory. He thought Oxford was the main writer, but he thought Oxford sort of had a group of writers working under him collaboratively. The Elizabethan theater was highly collaborative. And Slater suggested uh, Mary Sidney to account for what he called the feminine intuition in the plays. She was very interested in poetry and theater. She was a patron of poets, a kind of uh, Renaissance Gertrude Stein. She had a salon at her home, Wilton House. And Slater thought, you know, that she might have helped in the shaping of the female characters 
you know, who are so often disguising themselves in male clothing, aren't they? You know, so perhaps disguising herself beneath the male name. And then he also suggested that she might might have worked as sort of Oxford's executor, finishing and revising the plays after his death. That was that was the way he, her input was originally conceived. And so Mary Sidney has stuck around there as someone as a possible contributor to these plays. Amelia Bassano was proposed in the 21st century, much more recently. I had originally written about her in for the Atlantic. And she's interesting because she was born in London, but to Italian immigrants, actually musicians who had come from Venice to play for the court. So she sort of helps maybe, you know, you can use her as an explanation for the deep Italian knowledge and interest in the plays. One interesting little tidbit is that in 2008, a Shakespeare scholar discovered that there's a detailed description in Othello to a fresco in the town of Bassano del Grappa, Italy, where the Bassano family, Emilia Bassano, is originally from. And this particular Shakespeare scholar said, you know, look, Shakespeare's clearly seen this fresco. He must have been to this remote Italian town. Um, Shakespeare must have visited Italy. But of course, other scholars continue to reject that notion because it's too too much of a problem for them. But there are, you know, so there are little things like that that sort of raise the question of whether Amelia Bassano might have had some kind of influence. Let me ask you this then, at the, as we, are you going to continue with, with your investigations? Uh, where, where have you come out? I mean, how do people respond uh, to the book? I mean, is this, is this still a live topic in, in, in certain quarters of opinion? I wrote the book in part just to understand this whole phenomenon myself because I thought it was so interesting. And I, I haven't done investigations insofar as I've tried to you know, solve the question myself. That was not my aim in the book. I really wanted to report on the controversy. Well, you've done that. That's why the book is really good. Well, thank you. But, um, you know, it's been so hard watching it come out because on the one hand, you know, it's, um, it's being given to Shakespeare scholars often to review, which is sort of funny. So, of course, they're just trying to shut it down and they're just defending their own position. Uh, it's, about, it's about the scholars. It's about the phenomenon of belief. So when you give it to the believers to review, what do you think is going to happen? They're just going to sort of they're just sort of castigating me all over again as a lunatic or whatever. Then there have been some reviews by people outside of the, you know, Shakespeare scholarship community, you know, professors of theater or, you know, university librarians, for instance, other people who are much more open to the question. And of course, they receive the book very positively in a very, you know, very different, much more open-minded response. So uh, it's been, it's hard to see your work get misrepresented and twisted and smeared by people who, you know, they're really just defending their own reputations. Um, I will event. I, I, I have some other things that I'd like to write about this subject because it is interesting. Maybe a few other articles, but you know, eventually I'll, I'll move on. I want to write other books about other subjects. I have to pull myself out of the Renaissance, and I'm not going. You know, some people spend decades. Um, <laughs> they get really sucked into this subject because it is a wonderful sort of detective story mystery. Last question, Elizabeth. The, what strikes me about the, the book is the overtones with what's going on today in our political discourse. In other words, you, you read 
commentary on the left and the right. You read the defense of the recent uh, prosecution of, of Trump on the one hand and the defense on the other, and it both sides seem to be locked down in this uh, kind of religious conviction that you talk about in the on the question of the, the Shakespeare authorship. There are parallels here to kind of the force of political belief, just insofar as yeah. when people are so dug into a position, they're not going to change their minds. And in fact, when you present them with sort of evidence from the other side, they, you know, they can't see it. They, they will just cherry pick the evidence that supports them. So the, the spats that happened around Shakespeare are very similar to the dynamic of, you know, family members debating religion or debating politics. You know, it's the same, the same kind of entrenched disagreement. And no one really open to changing their mind. I mean, yes, it, it, it's, it's something to do with human psychology, sort of generally in any number of subjects. Well, that's what that's one of the the great strengths of this book because it's a commentary, very accurate one on the frozen condition of our own political discourse. Mm, thank you. I mean, I was surprised in some of my conversations with scholars. For instance, uh, Stephen Greenblatt, the, the famous Harvard scholar, he was a bit more open to doubt than I had expected. He he acknowledged that you know, um, with all things. Of the, to do with the past, you know, we have to have a little bit of humility and, you know, recognize that literary attribution, um, there can always be some room for doubt. So he was actually a little bit more open-minded than I had anticipated. One of the, my favorite things I did for this book was I went to the Folger Shakespeare Library and I read the correspondence of James Shapiro, an arch sort of Shakespeare defender, and John Paul Stevens, the late Supreme Court Justice who was very interested in the authorship question and very skeptical. And they, they discuss it back and forth. Shapiro gets very angry that he cannot persuade Stevens of Shakespeare's authorship. And Shapiro sort of cuts off the correspondence in a huff and says, you know, I'm not going to engage with you on this anymore. You've, you know, he's upset that he, he hasn't been per- able to persuade the Supreme Court justice. And Stephen responds, you know, I think none of us can be certain about what happened four centuries ago. So it's this whole issue of certainty, and humans love, we love certainty. It's sort of how we're wired cognitively. It's easier to be certain about things, and it's hard to dwell in a place of uncertainty. But I, I really love the phrase negative capability. It comes from John Keats, and he, he uses it, negative capability, as to describe the ability to dwell in uncertainty and mystery and doubt rather than rushing to certainty about something. So I think that's that's sort of what we need more of that <laughs> don't we we do and, and and really that's one of the wonders of your book and thank you very very much elizabeth winkler for speaking with us today about your new and very fine book shakespeare was a woman and other heresies how doubting the bard became the biggest taboo in literature thank you such a pleasure thank you for having me Lapham's Quarterly brings voices from the past up to the microphone of the present. Save more than 30% off the cover price and subscribe today for only $49. Visit laphamsquarterly.org slash podcast for more details. 